Welcome back. Glad you could be here tonight. Glad that uh, you made it out. We endeavor to study God's Word, think a little bit about how to put it into practice in our lives. I'm not sure if you have, if you're a perfectionist by nature or not, but um, I have a good friend who attends here and he's an architect by trade. We were talking about one time about how that works and he designs things and has built several projects all over town. And he said, it's weird, Toby. When, when I design something and then I see the final product, I don't often pay attention to the scope or the scale of the project or, or, or how everything fit together so well. Most of the time when I'm doing that final walkthrough, I'm paying attention to the, the things that where I know there was a mistake, where I know that, that something had to be corrected because of an error. I've pointed out my own flaws. I, I see those more readily. So kind of thinking, I said, I said, you go to, you go to Northside. Um, so let me just ask you. You ever see anything in the, in the building, in the structure that, that bugs you or you know there was a mistake? He kind of looked at me and smiled, not knowing that I would ever bring this up years later. He said, okay, I'll tell you. But he said, once I tell you, you'll never be able to not see it again. You've never noticed it until now, but you'll never see it. Now, he wasn't an architect on this building, okay? So, But he's just coming at it with that perspective. He said, when you, when you go into the auditorium and you look up and you see those vents, and you're going to do it right now, and I'm sorry for those of you sitting right here, this just won't work, but you folks over here can see it real well. You look right over here, he said, you'll see those vents, how every one of them is right in the middle, except for that one. He said, that was a mistake. This side too. He said, I guarantee you the architect didn't plan it that way. But when you're professional, that's what you, you look at. That's what you see. I, I can only imagine 2016, I know, has been a journey and a battle for some of you, but it cannot be harder for anyone else than Steve Tandy. And Steve Tandy is an excellent preacher. Okay, And when you are a person of excellent at anything, when you hear it done or you see it done, your natural... Gravitation is to think, eh, I would have done that. Oh, that was a good point. Or I would have done that differently. Oh, I messed up there. I mean, it, it's got to be like Michael Jordan going to a, a bitty basketball game. Now, I'm not sure what area in particular you're in or what area that you excel at or that you're an expert in. But my guess is when you're in that area, you are your harshest critic. The character we're going to talk about tonight was probably in many ways his own worst enemy. And God saw in him something far greater than he he ever, ever did. And maybe that's the point. Maybe in, in the journey of faith, sometimes it's more than just looking at our own flaws and shortcomings, the things that we do, and, and looking at those with an just, ah, oh, man, I messed up again. Ah, oh, I'm so unworthy. Ah, oh, I fall short in so many ways. Instead, maybe, maybe we ought to change our perspective 
and ask God what he sees. His God can only use flawed, imperfect people. That's all he's got to work with. And it's like judgment that the more unable, inept, unqualified you are, the more likely is God to want to use you. Because he sees far more in you than you do. And the more he uses you, the more he uses someone who's unable, inept, unqualified, the more likely he's going to get the glory, which of course he deserves. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 has been our theme verse on Sunday nights. If you've not been here, I'll remind you of that verse, which says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And we, as part of that, we've been looking at the Old Testament stories of faith and trying to get some perspective on them. And you, tonight, we're going to look at a man who changed a lot in just three chapters of the Bible. Imagine for a moment, if I came to you tonight, I kind of did this, I stood at the back and I kind of looked at the crowd and I said, you know, I think they can do it. I think it's possible. I think the 200, 250-ish of us, I think we have it within us to go drive north uh, and take the capital city of Kansas, Topeka. There's about 150,000 people, but I think we could do it. I know you didn't come here looking for a fight, but sometimes a preacher does. And so we just said after the final amen, we're going to travel north. We're going to get in our cars. We're going to travel up there with some trumpets, some jars, some torches, and we're going to take the city. And by the way, I have zero military or leadership battle-hardening experience. You say, that sounds silly. You know, a funny thing that you would say that. Now, turn with, with me to look at tonight's hero, Gideon the Wimp, Judges chapter 6, chapters 6 through 8. Of course, Gideon being a judge, a judge, if you're not aware, when we think of judge, we think of someone, you know, people's court or something like that, that makes a, a legal determination. And that wasn't the case with the biblical judges. They were leaders, military leaders. We might look at them as generals and, and uh, warriors. He is Gideon, a very unlikely hero to rise to a challenge where God's going to do the impossible. After Joshua had conquered the promised land and after he died, God began raising up these leaders, men and women, to lead the Israelites against their enemies. The last verse of that chapter tells us of the need for judges. Judges 21-25 says, In those days Israel had no king. Each man did what he thought was right, or what he saw fit, some translations say. That tells us why God has to raise up leaders. Uh, both then and now, by the way. It wasn't just then. When we are left to ourselves, we often see the worst of ourselves. And so, in the book of Judges, we go through these cycles. And you've probably heard of the cycle of the book of Judges. Uh, different people, you know, make it into four to seven cycles, depending on how they describe it. But basically, 
It was they would sin, they would rebel against God, they would worship the, the false gods and the Baals and set up the Asherah poles. And then because of that, God would get angry, and so he would give them over, and they would be oppressed in slavery, or they would be oppressed by an enemy. And then, in their misery, in their just complete suffering, they would call out to God. Not of a noble purpose, but just saying, Oh God, we're so sorry, we really messed up this time. And they would call out to him. They would make supplication, and, and he would respond, as he always did. Because he's good, not necessarily because they were good. And he'd raise up someone, a judge, to lead them and to, to deliver them, to bring them salvation. And he would, or she would deliver them, and there would be a time of peace, and then they would forget, and they'd go back in the cycle all over again. You say, oh, those Bible characters, they were so silly, weren't they? I mean, they just made the same mistakes over and over again. Tisk tisk. I know we never do that. But perhaps God put those cycles in there to teach us a lesson. So for 300 years, Israel bounces back and forth between being faithful to God, being disobedient to God, suffering because of their disobedience, being delivered, having a time of rest, having a time of peace, forgetting and slipping back into the same old thing. Which is why it's so important for us to study history. To, to look backward, to, to be reminded of the cycles that we've been through, but that we might not forget and repeat the cycle all over again. It's in this kind of setting where Gideon's story takes place. Israel's suffering. After 40 years of peace under the judge Deborah, Israel went back to their old habits. She was faithless, unfaithful again. So God gave them over to the Midianites for about seven years. They just absolutely ruined their lives and made it a terrible time of oppression. The scriptures say that they, it was so bad that they went and hid in the mountains and in the caves. And uh, the, the Midianites would, they would come down, they would infest their land, they would steal their crops, they would ravage every place of occupation, leaving them no place to go. And if they didn't want to die, the only option was to hide. And when things got bad enough, chapter 6, verse 6, they do what they had always done when it got bad enough. And they cried out to God. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. Now we step into the time where... Gideon's going to raise up this new leader to start the cycle all over again. But if you were picking a leader, I wouldn't likely have picked Gideon. And you wouldn't have either. Namely because he was a bit of a chicken. Gideon was an unlikely hero. He was afraid of the enemy. He was suffering right along with everyone else. 
when we're introduced to Gideon, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. I'm sure you've heard classes and sermons all mention this fact that it's true that you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. It's not made for that. You thresh wheat at the top of a hill where the, you toss it, you uh, break the grain and, and you gather it together and you toss it into the air and the wind carries off the chaff and the grain falls to the ground. That's how you do it. You don't do it in the wine press. Unless you're hiding. Unless you're not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be noticed. And there's Gideon, hiding in a wine press, not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be noticed, and hoping he's not noticed. Namely by the the Midianites, because they knew if they saw him, they would say, hey, there's somebody with food, let's go attack him and his family. So Gideon was afraid. He was afraid of starving, he was afraid the Midianites would kill him. He was afraid of losing it all. He doesn't start out in a place where it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. The Lord God is with us. This is not Gideon. Gideon was afraid of the enemy, but he also doubted God's presence. In verses 12 through 13 of chapter 6, the scriptures read, The angel of the Lord, I'm sorry, I'm starting verse 11, came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, and that belonged to Joash the Azurite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord, he's abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Midianites didn't know where Gideon was hiding, but God knew where. Gideon was hiding. In the translation there I read from the NIV, the Lord is with you, means, some scholars have said, his power is on you. You How can a guy, and he'll go on to explain how inept and unqualified for the job he was, that saw himself in this way, why did God look at him? We're not told why God picked Gideon. But what made him a mighty warrior was not Gideon's great leadership skills. He didn't go to a John Maxwell course. He wasn't a a great leader of men and women. It was that that the power of God was on him. Maybe Gideon couldn't see it. We know he couldn't sense it, but, but it doesn't escape the fact that what God's servant said was true. It was on him. God saw in Gideon what Gideon couldn't see. Gideon, by every measure, at least from a scriptural account, was a nothing, a nobody. Not someone you would look at. His resume would not have been more than maybe a couple of lines long, and those lines wouldn't have been that impressive. But God plus nothing is absolutely unstoppable. When you take God and you take someone who's a nothing, a nobody, someone who hasn't had the accolades and accomplishments, 
God can still do the unbelievable. But sir, why has this happened? Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. If you're going through a why has this happened moment. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. And do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. If you're a father and you have a son, if you love him and you delight in him, then you discipline him. Not because it's that pleasant of a process, but because it makes him from a boy into the man that you desire for him to be. And the same is true with God. It wasn't just true individually, although that is true. It was true with his beloved Israel. Israel, by the way, if you remember, the name simply means one who struggles. C.S. Lewis said it like this. I've always loved this quote. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Where are all his wonders, Gideon asks. It's been 250 years or so since God delivered Israel from Egypt with the ten plagues. It's been 200 years since God parted the Jordan and Israel crossed over on dry ground. It's been a long time, is what Gideon is saying, since any of that happened. And Gideon doubted himself. He was afraid of the enemy. He doubted God's presence. And he doubted himself. God's command was this. We're in verses 14 through 16. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. God didn't need him to be a mighty warrior right then. He just said, Go from where you are with the strength you have. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Did Gideon lack strength? Mm -hmm. Did he lack courage? You bet. By his own estimation, he was not the guy. But God sends him and he says, I'm with you. Verse 15, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites together. I just love his refreshing honesty and authenticity about who he is. We measure people. Right or wrong, we measure people. We measure people by what they've done. We measure people by their accomplishments. We even measure pedigree, the family they come out of. And we may not do that right out in the open, but we measure people and we measure ourselves. And Gideon said, I don't measure up. Who are you called? You see me hiding in this wine press? Do you get the idea I'm not up for a fight? God said, that doesn't matter. Am I... Not sending you? If it's anybody else sending Gideon, anybody else trying to rally, maybe Gideon had some friends that said, you know what, we think you ought to be the guy. Then yeah, Gideon should be worried. But when God says to him, be strong, mighty warrior, 
he's, he's, he's ignoring his family. He's ignoring his accomplishments. He's ignoring his position. He's ignoring his whole mindset and his attitude and saying to him, am I not with you? Am I not the one? If I'm the one sending, I was the one who sent them. I was the one who led them. I'm the same one sending you. God often uses those who can't to be the ones that can, not because of their ability, but because of God's ability. His command is, go in the strength you have. His comfort is, am I not sending you? I don't have anything to worry about. If I tell you to do it, trust me, I'm not going to tell you to do something that I won't give you the strength to do. God's comfort is, I will be with you. He doesn't argue with Gideon. He doesn't say, no, 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 Gideon, you don't understand. I, you, you, are, you have these uh, undefined, unseen, unnoticed leadership qualities. I, I'm picking a, a diamond here that everyone else has missed. I, I have uh, found things in you that no one else has found. He doesn't even argue that point. He simply says, if I'm with you, if I'm sending you, you don't have to worry. There are so many people of faith especially who think they can't because they can't. And God calls them to do the impossible and they think of all the reasons that they can't. The Bible is full of reasons for people who should not have been able to do what God enabled them to do. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was old. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah was too young. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Ruth was a widow. Job was bankrupt. Peter had a swearing problem. The disciples fell asleep. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was too little. Saul was too religious. And Lazarus was dead. So what exactly is your excuse again? Gideon can't boast, and this is, I think, one of the key things, that he did anything for God. Because we, I figure a Sunday night crowd has heard the story of Gideon many times, and they know where it goes. But don't you know that as they Watch the Midianites go into absolute chaos. And as they rout an army of 300, routes an army of 135,000, that Gideon, as the leader of that army, might have the opportunity to say, well, <laughs> clearly, superior leadership skills. Clearly, look at my family. Look at my... I mean, anyone in that position could have had the opportunity to get the big head. God needed somebody who started with a very small head so that he could do the amazing through him and understand every single step of the way. It was never about him. So Gideon grows more and more courageous. He starts by making a sacrifice. He, he offers a young goat and some unleavened bread and the angel touches it, this amazing consuming fire and it blows up and Gideon realizes Gideon realizes he's talking to the same God who did the same things all the way back then centuries ago and he's about to do something now and so he builds an altar and he calls it the Lord is peace 
I like to think about that because, you know, here's Gideon with all these reasons for being afraid. And the angel, he offers him this, this offering, and all of a sudden it just goes, <laughs> and all of a sudden, instead of being scared and frightened, and he may have well been, but he had an absolute peace here because he understood that what was about to happen was a spiritual thing that was going to just use him as a tool and nothing else. He got the opportunity of first First-hand experience, a front-row seat to watch God work. Oh, I love it. He makes this altar and he says, I, you know, like, I, I just have peace about this. I don't know how it's going to turn out. It sure seems like impossible odds to me, but I bet, I bet, if God's going to show up, that it's going to be amazing. He reverently obeys he goes through, and he does this, kind of what I have the picture of, him smashing the, the altars, tearing down the status quo, as all of God's judges had to do at some point. I mean, if they were going through that cycle, and they were sinning, and they were suffering, at some point, a leader of God has to stand up and say, the status quo cannot stand. The way things are has not been working. we got to do something different. And he goes in just savagely. Verses 25 and following. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd and the one seven years old and tear down your father's altar to Baal. Not enough time here, but that was a very, very big step. In that culture especially, he could have been stoned and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord to, uh, told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of his town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. You see, there's still fear running through, pulsing through Gideon's veins. Like, he's just got to understand that he knows. He knows he's not competent or qualified. That, that he can't stand. He just doesn't see what God sees. Maybe you've been in that position where God calls you to something and you really realize how incompetent and unqualified you are. And it makes your veins run cold with fear. And yet, in spite of his fear, he obeyed. He did what God called him to do. And people were upset, but his father came to his defense they go to Joash and he says, bring out your son. He must die because he broke it down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And so, they called, so that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal saying, let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Jerob Baal. It literally means, if you have a footnote, let Baal contend with him. Let, let 
all right, if he's really God, I guess God will deal with him. Gideon received two confirmations. The battle is coming. The Midianites and the Amalekites, it's going to be a big throwdown. And they're, they're getting ready to come to the valley. And the Spirit comes on Gideon. But before the battle begins, he needs a bit of confirmation. Okay, God, this looks like it's going to be a slaughter and not in a good way. So just so I'm sure, I'm going to put out this piece of wool. And first he says he needs the wool to be wet while the ground is dry. And then he says he needs the wool to be dry while the ground is wet. And both times God answers. He's afraid. He's fearful. <laughs> like Just double checking, God. Make sure you you sure he, he sat under the right tree. You called the right guy because you know who I am. And I don't feel like the guy. And then God does to Gideon what God could only do in Gideon. What only God could have done in Gideon. He made him into a conqueror. He didn't need a large army. And, and you know, they start out with 32,000. And they, they go out to follow Gideon. It's like chapter 7, verse uh, 3. And they say, anyone who's afraid, they turn back. So 20,000 men left, and uh, 22,000 men left, excuse me, while 10,000 remained. 10,000 sounds worse than 32,000 if I'm fighting a battle. But the Lord said to Moses, or to Gideon, there are still too many men. So take them down to the water, and I'll sift them out there. And there's this whole how they drink the water and all of that. And they get it down to 300. God pared that down to 300 men. Because he didn't want Israel to boast. Certainly didn't want Gideon to boast. I think Gideon's a good spot. He gets it. But Israel was often prone to forgetting that who it was who really won the battle. And God's going to deliver him in such a way it's going to be possible unless he gives them impossible odds. So that the only, the only credit they can possibly give is toward, toward God. God loves the impossible odds. I always love what D.L. Moody said. In fact, I wrote this, had this quote written down. I thought it fit. He said, give me ten men who fear nothing. Who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God. And I will change the world. I'm not sure what the character was of those 300 men. I think God was just looking for, I need to get, I need to get it where it's absolutely an impossible battle. So that I could simply give them the victory. God says to Gideon, go down, get your servant and Purah and go down there. So they go down into the valley and it's just thick. It's just, there's too many to count. They can't even count the camels. And they overhear a couple of guys talking about a dream that they had. And there's this barley loaf and it rolls into the tent. And the guy says, this only means one thing. God's given this battle into Gideon's hands. Do they know that Gideon's listening over there? No. Do they realize how afraid and fearful he is? How aware of his incompetency and his inadequacy of his imperfection? No. They don't think anything of Gideon. Who do they say has given it into, the, into, their, into Gideon's hands? God has given us into Gideon's hands. 
So Gideon hears this course and gets all excited, as he well should, but he takes time to worship the Lord, and then he returns to rally the troops. All right, guys, it's a little pregame pep talk here. We're going to take those Midianites. We're going to take them out. Yeah, I know. There's, there's 135,000 or so of them. We don't need to start counting, really. What we're going to do is split up into, into three groups here. So I guess 100 to you, 100 to you, and 100 to you. Now, your weapons. You're going to need some, some really good weapons. Uh, so here you go. Pass around these trumpets. You guys pass around the jars. Everybody make sure they got a torch. Sounds like they're in prime fighting condition. Now follow me. And they encircle them. And that night, 300 men watched God work. 300 men watched 135,000 Midianites flee in fear. Be pretty cool if we could take Topeka. Nothing personal. I don't think it's going to happen. One, because I know I'm not that good of a leader. Two, because I'm pretty sure most Sunday night crowds are not that much of a fighter. But if God called us to do it, I would be absolutely confident in saying, God is with us. The battle is ours. Nothing personal against Topeka. They just happen to have the same number or so. And Gideon became the ruler that God knew he could be. They wanted him to rule. But even in this, he stays humble. I love chapter 8. This is a great line from Gideon. To me, what makes him a great leader. Chapter 8, verse 23, starting 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us. You saw that coming, right? Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Surely God knew that was coming too, right? I mean, Israelites were tend to prone to worship things, and they were just trying to replace Baal and the Asherah pole with Gideon and his family. Gideon, maybe, maybe one of the best parts of his resume, remembered that he used to be just a guy hiding in a wine press. And he said to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, not here about legacy, not concerned with my legacy or influence. He says, the Lord will rule over you. The land enjoyed 40 years of peace under Gideon. And then, of course, they forgot, as they often would. But... I think we can learn several lessons from the life of Gideon, and I'll give you three, because that's how preachers think in terms of three. One, God sees you. He hasn't forgotten you, and he hasn't stopped working. Jesus said it like this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet... Just the other day, a family was taking a little family walk, and... As we're going along the sidewalk, there along the side of the sidewalk is a little dead sparrow. I don't think anybody in the world stopped or paid attention or noticed. And yet, Jesus said, not one of them will fall. That sparrow didn't fall to the ground outside of God knowing about it. He knew the number of feathers on the sparrow. 
He knew when the sparrow was born. And when he fell, he knew that he fell. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. It's easy to think sometimes that God has forgotten you. And he doesn't see you there hiding in your wine press. They're hoping that the worst won't happen. They're paralyzed by fear and wondering what tomorrow holds. But God still sees you, mighty warrior. God sees more in you than even you see in you. Number two, God is able. And I I get a Sunday night crowd should understand that, but it's easy for even a Sunday night crowd to forget. When we go into the office and we're given a pink slip, when the kids are giving us trouble and we wonder if they're going to make it into adulthood, when the doctor gives us the bad news, we begin to think like Gideon. I'm not able, God. I, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong lady. The more able you are, however, the less you need God. That's what we tend to think. He is able and he's going to grow you and stretch you and usually he's going to do that through the difficulties of life. God is able to make you able. And if you can remember that, then you'll do well. And number three, this is how God's ability works in our inability. God is patient. He was patient through Israel's repeated idolatry. And he was patient through Gideon's fear. It's interesting to me that God didn't, in this case, chastise Gideon for his weak faith. He simply waited. He grew Gideon's faith. He knew where Gideon was. He knew where he needed to lead Gideon. And he was going to get him there patiently. He just needed Gideon. To obey, not to be able, not to be this great leader, but to just obey humbly. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. May we not forget the story of Gideon, which I'm sure we well know. May we ingrain within our lives and our hearts the lessons of Gideon. It's not about us being able. It's just about us being willing. Are you willing to give your life to Christ if you haven't done so? Or maybe you're questioning your abilities and wondering if God still sees you. I want to remind you that he does. But if you need us to pray with you, encourage you, we want to help you in any way that we can. Next week we'll talk about the untalented. Tonight the lesson is yours. If you have a a need, if you need some encouragement, Or if you'd like to put Christ on in baptism, let us help you with that. Let us lead you, though you're unable, to a God who is very willing. Together, as we stand and sing.